In April 2020, just as the global pandemic was kicking off, Lawrence and I started recording our weekly Friday Firesides. These are conversations broadcast live over the Crowdcast platform and joined by people all over the world who listen in and share their thoughts with us via the chat. We started these live recordings as an opportunity to keep in touch with our members, as well as process what it meant to run a business during a pandemic. Since then, we've broadcast nearly every single Friday and built up a library of over 100 episodes. We cover a range of different topics from money to meaning, pricing to purpose, vision to vulnerability, entrepreneurship to empathy, and product design to life design. This is our perspective of what it means to do business from the inside out, as well as the outside in. If you're a business hippie just like us, then you'll definitely find something of value here. We hope that these conversations inspire and motivate you to do work and build businesses that create meaningful change without burning out. Because like us, you're just wanting to make money, do good, and be happy. I'm Aisha Brissell. I was at the um, Happy Startup Camp this year in September. It was the highlight of my year and made a lot of friends, had a lot of fun, fun, learned so much. And now I'm back in New York and just counting days to come back. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I'm an industrial designer and I've designed many, many things from um, toilet seats to office systems to um, kitchen utensils to concept cars for some of the top brands in the world and then developed a design process out of that that I call deconstruction, reconstruction. And actually, uh, I was talking to a dear friend of mine the other day, and he calls it destruction, reconstruction. And I thought, I'm going to change the name <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and apply that uh, design process to my life and more recently to our long life. And now I have a new book coming out. So I'm an industrial designer, coach, and author, and mom. Multi-potentialites. Um, <laughs> so one of the questions you asked me uh, this week around, because we, I was connecting this idea of the work that we do with um, the work that you've been doing. Uh, we talk about the Excite strategy in, in our work and our Vision 2020 program. Um, and I was, you know, looking through the nine lessons that you you shared at summer camp. That felt like there's quite a lot of connection and overlap there. And so that's why I came with that question as well. It's like, okay, how can I have more ease and maybe more clarity going into this next stage of of life? But there's there's something here from your research that you were talking about at summer camp, um, and there were stories that you you were keen to share about. So what where that I think that what fed that research or what added to that research and I was just keen to maybe surface some of those stories that you know might give us some texture or color to these lessons and, and maybe we can also start talking about some of the lessons and what that mean to what they mean to you and also what they mean to us in terms of I, I remember there's like were, were there any was there anything specific like at summer camp that you wished you had said or shared in terms that you think, oh, if only I had a bit more time, was there something that you were like, ah, oh, I wanted to tell this story that maybe you could kick us off with? 
well, we'll we'll dive into multiple stories. But one of the things that um, uh, I was reminded of the other day is um, how one of my friends, my uh, guru, actually, who is uh, someone who works with the world's top CEOs and experts, how uh, he reached out to me to help him design his life. So he. He's very supportive of my work. And when my book, Design the Life You Love, my first book came out, he said, why don't we do a session together and I'll bring all my friends. And uh, he showed up with 70 of his friends. <laughs> and, and in the process, he designed his legacy and his life. And, um, and you know, this is someone who's a best-selling author and expert. And written a book about succession. But the interesting thing was he couldn't do it for himself. And it was kind of like the shoemaker who can't, you know, tie his own shoes. Mm -hmm. And so in a way he came to me. And so I was thinking about that and thinking it's kind of, you know, in New York at the end of the um, night, all the chefs go to another chef's restaurant to eat. So I'm kind of like that chef where the other experts come to mm -hmm. design their life and in what a privileged position that is. And so I feel like even though it's um, 7 a.m. in the morning here, like this is where all the chefs are here now, mm -hmm. <laughs> early in the morning, um, talking about like cooking and good stuff and um, the the things that we love to do. Mm. So that's what you're making me think. And by the way, the guru's name is Marshall Marshall Goldsmith. Yeah, I was, I was looking into. Uh, is it the the earned life? Is that the, the earned life? The, the earned life. And um, I was joking the other day that the earned life is about you know, Marshall's philosophy of life, which is Buddhist, but has a lot of overlap. Um, Carlos and uh, Laurence with what you do and um, and I was saying Marshall your book is uh, or actually my book is The Earned Life Illustrated <laughs> I think a lot of people in our community are, are coaches um, uh, or some people some phrases people help us uh, you know, there, there's something about wanting to be of service to others uh, human beings uh, that, that drives a lot of people in our community. But there's something, what I'm, I'm hearing here is this idea of like, but it's hard to help ourselves, even if you help other people with specific things. And so from your perspective, I'd be curious, you know, your, what, what is it, why do we find it so hard to help ourselves from your, you know, do you have any thoughts around that? You know, when COVID started, I started these virtual teas that, um, we do every um, every Wednesday at 5 p.m. tea time, which unfortunately is a little bit late for you all. But I have some, uh, you know, members of the community who also join us from the UK. Um, but the idea of the virtual tea was, you know, we were all sheltering in place and nobody knew what was going on. And I reached out to my community, like you reach out to your community and said, would you like to design your life through, you know, COVID or the pandemic? 
and people came back with a big yes and we started doing these things and i thought that i was helping others um to your point you don't think about helping yourself and then somewhere along like the 20th or 30th t i realized you know what the the person who's getting the most help here is me and and that was even though that's something that i talk about um in you know design the long life you love which is one of the lessons we wanted to talk about is help others to help yourself um, i didn't realize it but then when it hit me i i embraced the virtual teas even more and we we're still doing them so if anybody is interested um please join them and um we're at 112 <laughs> and there, there is i think really the, the best thing i could say is if you want to help yourself help someone else so particularly with you what is it you're feeling that you're getting now or you, you've been getting from the virtual teas what is it about how you're helping others and then what is it you, you think you're getting help with i think the there is this collective sense of gratitude that emerges out of each virtual tea of seeing people smiling and making friends helping each other collaborating seeing that live uh, that all kind of adds up and comes back to me and i think that's a big part of um, helping is be being useful to others uh, increases our sense of meaning and purpose. Mm -hmm. And you know, you you don't think of it like that. At least I didn't. You know, I was like, oh, you know, I have something to share. I'll, I am the expert. Let me help you. Mm -hmm. um, and it was very humbling to realize. Hold on one second. You're all helping me. There's a line we use a lot, which is, "You can't see the label." When you're in the bottle which i think talks to why we find it so difficult to help ourselves particularly if we are skilled at a craft we even had this as a web design agency we ended up bringing someone else in to design our website because we couldn't either get the time find the time to do it ourselves or agree on what what done looked like and so yeah i think that's one thing is it's really difficult um you can't see the wood from the trees when you're so close to something i think um but yeah i mean we see it a lot on in our events and particularly on the vision program is it feels to me the point at which people switch off their own brain and start sort of plugging into someone else's problems and challenges they start to either feel really useful like you said and build their confidence by going oh, actually i sound like i know what i'm talking about here and the advice they end up giving other people is often the advice they need to hear themselves and so there's definitely something there where we just help like the guy we had michael owen on the Fireside a couple of weeks ago talked about a similar thing, didn't he? Start with generosity, and through that you build. You know, you get a lot more back than you than you give. And so, yeah, there's definitely something in that. I think is, uh, yeah. It, I think when you go back to your own work, your own life, it feels a bit more clear. I think there's something that I heard when you were talking, Aisha, about this. Like, you know, I think you're talking about gratitude. This like sense of connection. This sense of not being alone you know being sharing a space or sharing feelings with others that you know you feel like that you're not the only one feeling those feelings in a sense but if i'm thinking about this it's, I'm, a, I'm coming up to this halfway point in life to put it crudely for a good chunk of the first half i did feel it was all about me and how i achieved and how i did things and how i you know it was all about doing things on my own 
not needing the help of others because I by doing it on my own I create this sense of uh, self-worth importance value all right it's about achievement and then this shift about actually it isn't just about me and actually I could probably do more if I asked other people for help and I could probably do more by helping other people and so what used to be I'm going to be wasting time on other people and I'm not progressing myself it's morphed into actually I won't progress myself unless I'm with other people there's like a, a contrast between a very individualistic look at life to a more collective view of life you know what's interesting the way you're you know looking at your life as a continuum is exactly what I did uh, in the uh, research that we did with people who were 65 and older and helping them design their life and uh, trying to understand you know how we change and what we realized is um, we're actually same but different and I talked about this mm. uh, at uh, summer camp and so you're, you're still the same person uh, and the same things are important to you Carlos that uh, you know whether it's love friendship purpose well-being I mean those are the four important pillars of our life but how you get to them um, changes and transforms over time and you know what you're talking about this transition or yeah, transformation from me to we is actually something that is uh, in our genes and it's a you know, neuroscience tells us that that's supposed to happen. But since we're all around this table here, uh, people who coach others, and we understand that you can create new habits, um, the idea is, yes, it's going to happen naturally, but some of those things could be really useful to us early in life, earlier in life, you know. Uh, wouldn't you, the younger Carlos want to know how to help other people and drive energy and satisfaction from from that in his 20s. And so that's kind of the, um, when we're talking about the nine or so lessons or the, the whole research is uh, realizing the wisdom of older people and sharing that so that we can acquire it earlier in life. And, um, and that transition truly from me to we is um, happens in the midlife mm. and in and it's called wisdom you know oh I just wish I had a bit more of that when I was in my mid-20s to be honest um, yeah me too <laughs> <laughs> because it I don't know I'm, I'm drawn to lesson two which is <coughs> live life on your own terms yeah and I felt in those early years I, I was driven to try and do things on my own terms you know uh, so achieve things on my own terms get financial independence so i could make choices on my own terms um get the the status that i felt was important to look like i knew what i was doing so i could make decisions on my own terms uh but that on one hand i i've kind of felt like actually i was still living life on someone else's terms because that was what they thought was the way to do things <laughs> but i was also so i think maybe myopic about it or blinkered to not realize that by connecting with other people and, and helping whichever way that may happen is like 
I'd open myself up to different ways of living, different terms that I could pick up. You're making me think one way to think about it really is that it is, you, you know, I love dichotomies, things that kind of cancel each other out. If you can help make them coexist, you're creating something that is um, unique and deep in value. So a very simple example is less is more. You know, how could less be more? But we, we understand that. And, and we, when we can make it happen, it's just amazing. So a similar one here is the dichotomy resolution between young and old or youth and elders and, uh, and making them coexist. Uh, and one way of doing that is uh, making sure that we're in, uh, that we have intergenerational relationships in our life and at work, in our friendships, uh, in our family. And sometimes we neglect to do that. You know, young people stay with young people, older people stay with older people. And this might be one of the lessons we're gonna talk about, but one way to um, kind of be intentional about being inter intergenerational is uh, making friends who are nine years younger and nine years older. And when you think about that, and nine of course is, you know, just a placeholder. For me, it was this realization that I have older friends, but I don't have many younger friends. And what it would take to you know, make younger friends, whether it's with my students or with my interns. And, um, and where I'm going with that is also many people around the table here are entrepreneurs to have the same dynamic in, in their teams, and as they look at their users in that user profile, I'm going about it in a roundabout way, but when you start to live that, um, you start to see examples of um, people who do their own thing, you know, because often we care so much about what other people think that it paralyzes us. And I'm including myself in this, you know, that fear that I feel most mornings um, comes from being good, often being good at what you do and feeling like I can't fail because I'm supposed to know what I'm doing. And, um, but as you get older, you realize your, your weeks decrease, you know, the, the amount of, the number of weeks that you have left. And that gives you a sense of deadline, which actually is useful uh, in the sense that, you know, I'm a designer, I love deadlines, I need to like work towards something. And similarly in life, something happens when you realize you don't have an infinite <clears throat> number of days um, and you decide, well, if that's the case, I wanna do what I love. I wanna do what I care about, which I think marries very much with what mm -hmm. you teach. Lawrence and Carlos is that um, what's that inner voice telling you that you need to do? So older people really listen to that inner voice. And mm. when they listen to that inner voice, they listen less to the external voices or the potential external voices that are going to tell them, you know, that sucks or you know, so 
and that gives you a sense of daring. Um, and that, that's very useful. So again, somewhere in here, I say, like, that's what I want my kids who are teenagers to know um, is to less waste time, mm -hmm. um, even though they feel like they have, and I hope they have a very, very long time, but still feel like they have a less time, they have less time. And in that time, do what you really care about or more of what you care about and don't give an F what other people think. You, you're giving a whole, a whole new meaning to the word <laughs> deadline now for me. Thank you for that. Deadline, yes. <laughs> yeah. Now we know where that comes from. Exactly. <laughs> when, when there's a, a scarcity of time, you know, there's only so much we can do. And it reminds me of the Oliver Berkman book, 4,000 Weeks. Yeah. We can't do everything. You know, we can't fit everything that we think we should do into the time we have. And so we have to start making choices about what's, what to do and what not to do. And, and a bit of a, a parallel metaphor, one of our terms is like, when, I, when we go on a holiday in the summer and I get my kids to pack the suitcase, so there's only much, so much space. <laughs> You've got to decide what you can bring. You can't bring everything. Right. And so you really have to make some tough decisions as to what it is, what is it I really want? You know, what will I need when I'm out there, when I'm going forward? And that's hard to do, <clears throat> really hard to do without knowing exactly <clears throat> what is for me. It's like, what, what is, what do I dare to be? You talk, I love that word. It's like, how can <clears throat> we be more daring? And there's something there, or there's a courage there to choose, or a need to be courageous in order to choose, and that not being dependent on whether someone says that's a good choice or not. And that's really, it's really, I found that really tough when I was younger. And there's something about getting, having more miles behind me, something around, you talked about wisdom, there's a discernment or just a, a bit more knowledge about it, coupled with, I don't have time to waste trying to work out what's mm. the right thing. I just got to make a decision. Exactly. And I think I've always struggled with this whole idea of caring about what other people th think, um, because I think I, I, it was too much intertwined with being basically not caring about people, being a bit, um, I can't, words fail me. But yeah, not, not being very compassionate, maybe, or not being very considerate. <clears throat> it's like, oh, I'm going to do it. I don't care what you think. I'm going to do this. The thing that helped me shift that mindset a bit was this idea that the way I look at some, a situation or a decision is not necessarily the same way that someone else will look at it. And everyone is looking at the world through a very different set of spectacles or goggles, beliefs, values. And so when they criticize something or say something that doesn't align with what you think or feels like a, a disparagement of the work you're doing, it's coming from a very different place. And so to care about it or not care about it is to say, okay, that's your perspective. And so maybe I can still keep on going with this because you're having a completely different view about it. And then to care about it is to then query like, what is it? Why is it you're saying that? What is it the perspective you have? that's making you say that this isn't the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. And then to then be at peace with, well, that's your perspective. And I understand what that is. Well, there's also something about who you care about 
listening to as well. So I think um, I think lots of people care too much about what people they may never come in contact with think if they post something on LinkedIn or social media because they're fearing the trolls, they're fearing the negative responses from people when they may never know or meet, and that prevents them from putting anything out there or even certainly opening their heart and being more vulnerable. And so understanding who you really care about listening to, I think, well, it's important for me when I started writing to think, okay, I'm not for them, but that's fine. And and if they don't like it, they don't like it. And over time, I've got more comfortable with that. But it's hard at the start because you're like, oh, I want everyone to like me. The thought that someone doesn't like you or something that you say is quite painful if you're a people person. <laughs> but I think over time, knowing that actually I'm really talking to you. And so by really wanting to talk to you, I really can't talk to someone else. And that's okay. You reminded me of a lesson I learned, uh, you know, working with Herman Miller, and it's a reframing. So we were doing a very innovative project, uh, an office system that was really like changing the way we think about office systems. And we did a focus group and nobody on the focus group almost uh, liked what we were doing to the point where the design director from Herman Miller, you know, how you sit behind the, the mirror and people talk about your product and they don't see you. Uh, and you're never supposed to let them know that you're there. He came out and joined the, the, the people that were the focus group and defended the product. He was so upset. <laughs> He's like, you don't understand. So, but then the director of research at Herman Miller, Jim Long at the time, said, you know, this is a good thing because what we're doing is innovative and people don't know it. And therefore, they don't know how to like it. And I think for many of us here who are working on uh, new ideas and innovation, I think it's good to remember that sometimes people don't know how to love something that they don't know. And mm -hmm. part of the journey is helping them, you know, get there. I think there's something very important about that. It, for me, it connects to this idea of when we give feedback on an idea that's very new and very early. Um, and I've seen it happen that within our groups and in our community, someone's got a new idea for a product or service and they share it at this very early stage where it isn't very clear. And then some people go jump straight in with, oh, you should do this, you should do that. That's, you know, they, there's a, in a sense, they're really stress testing something very, very new that maybe they don't understand where it's coming from. And so the, the person is, whose idea it was has having to defend the rationale, the decision-making, because it's so new and there's not enough background understanding that the people who are giving feedback might not be coming from a place of that's productive, coming from a place of like, oh, I don't know this thing, so it needs to be this other thing, as opposed to actually maybe there's this whole this idea has a whole new approach that I need to, to get a better perspective on. So that's yeah. what was coming up for me in terms of this whole generating new ideas. And this thing about who do we listen to or who do we care about in terms of their feedback, it reminded me of a story <clears throat> I was reading in Mix, I think it's Mix Mag, some music magazine about a music collective. And there, there were two of them who, who made music. And one of the guys who was being interviewed is like, the only person he cared about in terms of the opinion about the music, was his creative partner. It, it, it was made, essentially, he said he was making music for that person. 
and and if he liked it that they went for it <laughs> but he didn't really care <laughs> about mm -hmm. what ultimately he didn't really care what anyone else thought and that process worked for them because they ended up making really good music that lots of people liked mm. but there was that real thing of like actually that person's opinion counts not mm. anyone else's and i think that's there's something there i'm being discerning about not only in terms of who has the knowledge but who do you want to listen to as well i also wonder with that i've been reading nick cave's book one of his books where he talks about something similar um, nick cave the musician and the interesting thing is he said was oh the way i think about it, it's not that you don't care what people think it's just if you if you worry about that too much you'll end up not doing anything and so by caring you end up then trying to second guess what they are thinking what they want and so as a creative artist musician entrepreneur i think worrying about that so much i think is debilitating in some way so it's not i don't I think that not that they don't care but i think they can't control people's reaction to something and like you said having that intention of why you're doing it important one that i wanted i was really curious about i mean Carl's might cover this anyway was that one of the lessons i'm not sure what number it is but the idea of starting something even though you don't know yeah i was just about to say oh, exactly okay. the same thing Lesson great minds six. just because it's so talks to our philosophy and the people we work with and we say start before you're ready but there's so much fear out there of but i don't know where it's going to end i don't know what i'm creating why would i do this if i don't know if it can make me money or make me happy or make impact i wanted to connect this up because it it, it does follow on from these previous two cut lessons for me in terms of uh, this whole idea of living life on your own terms and this um what that means in terms of when you're starting something new and something different and you might not know where it's going to go and then other people say oh you can't do that you know that's never going to work or you know this, there's that real tension between what other people think and doing something completely new and different that isn't clear about where it will go i love how you're weaving all the the dots into a, a beautiful narrative so well mm -hmm. done <laughs> actually one thing i'd add reading that again that um lesson start something even though you know, don't know how it end i'd like to be provocative and say start something because you don't know how it's going to end ah it's so good shoot the book is already published <laughs> <laughs> this is a digital version <laughs> but um again when we worked with older wiser people what we realized is how much um energy and motivation they have for starting something new uh, and again, it comes with the sense that, you know, I want to do what I love, what I care about. I don't have a lot of time. And, you know, and it could be a second or a third career. It could be going and helping other people. It could be, uh, you know, writing a book, but something that gives them a sense of purpose. And so with that, I wanted to explain to everyone of all ages that, um, you know, starting something new and having projects is actually uh, a great way of designing our life because projects have um, definition, they have goals, they have deadlines, we can um, work on them and they they evolve, right? And we can collaborate. So they have a lot of the things that make our life fulfilling. Um, but with it, there is this sense of like, I'm scared because I don't know how this is gonna go. 
and uh, and so just being cognizant of that's the nature of things you know um and there is ambiguity into lawrence your point that's the beauty of it uh, mm. that you don't know but you could have the um you need to trust the emergence of something that's yeah. going to happen <clears throat> and it does happen but it doesn't happen if you're not doing it it happens mm. as you're doing it and so one of the um techniques that um i talk about michael bangay stainer who's written a book uh about this how to begin and i highly mm. highly recommend it as well um and he says one of the ways that you can manage that um that fear is working in bursts to not thinking oh my god like i'm going to like spend a year on this but instead say i i'm going to work in bursts of six weeks mm. and you can define your burst like you could say three weeks you know two months whatever it is and i'm <clears> going <throat> to check in and kind of see where i'm at and it makes me like a lot of what i do everything i do is through the design and designer's lens right in design you do the same thing you you work in phases you don't go from idea to product in a month it often takes you know at least a year often two to three years but you work in phases like there's an idea phase there's a concept phase there's a design and development phase there's a refinement phase the thing that springs to mind is connected to this oh we've got limited amount of time left we have to make a decision on the thing that we're going to do if we're going to spend a year on something and we're not sure if it's going to work i've just lost a year <laughs> just lost a year out of those 50 or whatever and there's like one year left so there's a real anxiety about committing to something that might mean i've wasted effort then you talk about time boxing and like you know the six weeks is this kind of little process of just having kind of definitive um markers around the project uh, and I like the idea of, um, well, 20 weeks being an interesting time box, Lawrence, for our Vision yeah, 2020 great program. Segue. Great segue. But, because it's, I think it's having a length of time that's long enough to get you into uh, getting into some work, sort of like really exploring something, but then it feels like not so long that you think, oh, my God, if it doesn't work, <clears throat> it's all for nothing, or I've just wasted time. And and that I, was, I really wanted to attack, just focus on that feeling of like oh my god I've just wasted time and uncertainty it's like this whole fear of uncertainty this fear of wasting time this fear of not getting an outcome <clears throat> to something that some seems quite well my perspective one of the deepest root causes for not making a decision or committing to something and I don't know if well that also paints like, that yeah. paints a picture of it's a binary success or failure there's complete waste of time or there's success at the end of the rainbow. One of the biggest th lessons that I learned in doing, uh, starting Design the Life You Love, uh, and that was about, yeah, almost 12 years ago, um, was this intersection of failure and success, actually. Hmm. And um, the realizing that failure can be the beginning of something beautiful, because I started this transformation into designing my life because of a failure and the failure was you know when 2008 happened and the economy crashed in the states 
we went from being a very successful industrial design studio to having no clients. And that feeling of failure, like how, like it's okay if it happened to other people, but like, how could this happen to us? You know, mm. we're supposed to be the exception. We're so good. And like really, again, this humbling realization that, you know, it's happening to all of us and we have no work, we have kids, you know, how are we going to do this? And then from that very painful, not mm -hmm. to, you know, discount that, but then in, in that failure, realizing the, the silver lining that I had a lot of time in my hands and I could do something useful with that time. So, and I think we all have stories like this, right? Where mm. we failed and something good came of it. And so I guess this is a way of saying that um, none of it is wasted. Mm. It's just hard, you know. One thing I'd add to that as well is when I think of people trying, like Carla said, like it can be debilitating so you don't make any steps forward. So you're worried about what the outcome might be is like what you collect along the way if something doesn't work. So the relationships you build, the awareness people have of your direction of travel, if it's a new vision for your work or business, um, and actually what you learn about yourself in that process. And so that's the bit. I think people don't see it. It's the intangibles that often... We just say, okay, the business didn't work, so it's a failure versus actually, what do I have with me now? What intangible assets do I have with me now that I can take with me going forward? That ties then back to self-love and compassion, which mm. is so, so important. And again, something that happens naturally as we get older, that's part of becoming wise, is we learn to love ourselves. But again, um, many people here are you know, younger and, and again, you don't have to wait until you're older, but it's so <clears> important <throat> to have that self-love and compassion. And it's a learned skill. You know, it's basically, um, and I talk about this in the book, training your brain. <clears throat> and, and the, the, the value of that is, um, it's not, have I succeeded or not? The question is, have I tried my best? And that changes everything because if you're trying your best, you know, you, you can fail, but you're still trying and tomorrow you might, you know, get there. And that notion mm -hmm. that this is, it's an action. It's not, you know, it's a verb. Have I tried my best? I think really helps us um, manage those um, difficult moments. The way I think about this whole trying my best way of looking at things, because on one hand, I, my, a past version of me would be like, all right, I've, I've really like forced it and really pushed hard. I think a more relaxed version of that for me is, am, am I fully present with the work? Am right. I really, I'm not thinking about the outcome. I'm, not, I'm fully present with what I'm doing right now, because if I'm fully present, then I will do my best. Because mm. I know exactly, my, I know where my head is at and I know where all my focus is. Yeah. And, and I connect this to three other lessons I think you've got here. First one, yes, love yourself. Because I think if I'm fully present, I'm not worrying about the mistakes I'm going to make and I'm not um, being my head, head over the uh, my head over with a stick because of the mistakes I made in the past. It's like I'm just being with what's going on in the moment. And then also I think by being fully present, I, like, I love lesson eight, feeding my soul. I'm actually being much more present with 
not only what's going on around me, but what's going on with myself and what's needed for myself. And that for me is, is uh, yeah, I think core for me for the next 50 odd years, maybe mm. just how can I be more present and think about less about the outcomes, but what is, how am I feeding my soul with everything that I'm doing from now on? So may I add a qualifier to that? Uh, because I think for me, being present how also changes, actually change things. So I found that for me, unconditional love and joy is how I want to be present. And so when we're here together, for example, and I look at you and I think of everybody who's with us here, I think of you all with love. That I, and also with the sense that I love being here. And so that becomes a way to um, think about other places where I don't love being and therefore I can't be present, you know. Mm. When you unpack that idea of being present, there are qualities in there that you want to be present with. Uh, that's for me, the core of this is the quality of that experience. Not being present means I don't sense into the things that's happening around me. And so the quality of that experience is kind of dull. It's like muted, it's like black and white TV, as opposed to like HDR 4K experience, just a really rich experience of life. And so that's what I'm taking from the invitations from the lessons that are invitations from your book is like, how can we rather be on a slow march to death waiting for retirement? How can we embrace life? and all that it's going to offer and the richness so that it feels mm. like a high quality experience as opposed to a God's waiting room. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, a quick question on that lesson feature. So are you saying be intentional about what inputs you have, like what's what you're feeding yourself with in terms of experiences or information? So um, I think to, to both your points, being intentional about what feeds your soul is key. And one of the things that feed our soul, it's like, where, where do we drive meaning, right? Fighting for a cause might feed our soul. Working on a project, helping somebody else could feed our soul. But one of the best ways to also feed our soul is through social connections and friendships. And so maybe my favorite chapter in the book is about friendships and making friends as opposed to finding love and that you can manufacture friendships and, and how to do that. And I think uh, I mentioned this at the summer camp, but what you're doing with your community and um, with summer camp and you, with, your friend, with your programs is creating really friendship factories. And, and collaboration and working together and learning from each other, helping each other. These are, in my mind, actually all subsets of how to make friends. And then our friends uh, feed our soul. One for the t-shirt factory. Yeah. <laughs> actually, I remember someone saying that years ago. Hire, our friend Hire from uh, uh, Norway said, this is a friend factory. <laughs> it sounded, I remember at the time thinking, that sounds really cold. <laughs> but now I get it. Friends feed our souls, and I was—I felt—I have felt my soul being very well fed um, by yeah. spending this time with you, Aisha. And talking. Thank to you. you very much. I'm—I'm <laughs> I'm addicted in the best way possible. 
It's so, so good seeing you. Yeah, Thank and there's a link in the chat the... to the new book, so people can pre-order it now, is that right? I know you've got one of the few hard copies in your in your hand. Yes, pe people can order it. Excellent. <laughs> Thank you very much. Okay, everyone, take care. Thank you for your time, and until next time. Bye-bye. Have a good weekend. All right, take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Happy Entrepreneur Podcast. To hear more inspiring conversations like this, follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Just search for The Happy Entrepreneur. In March, we'll be launching Tribe 7 of our Vision 2020 program. If you're at a point in your career or entrepreneurial journey where you're asking yourself, what next? And you need the clarity and confidence to make some bold decisions about a new direction, then this program is for you. We'll help you define what success really means to you, understand the impact that is yours to make, make sure your mission is both energetically and financially sustainable, and also learn how to build a supportive community around yourself. We want people who are driven to do good in the world and are tired of trying to do it on their own. We'll share the key lessons we've learned while building the Happy Startup School and pivoting from the stressful peaks and troughs of agency life to a life of freedom, adventure, service and connection. We value learning, play and friendship and we'd like to help you discover the values and the work that align more to who you are. Don't struggle alone and don't get sidetracked by other people's measures of success. Discover for yourself what it means to create effortless impact. To apply for the next tribe, go to vision.happystartups.co. We look forward to hearing from you.